0: Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits, and this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me, and then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk, let's share information, let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. welcome back into porter flute pod this is episode eight we're calling it story time who's got a good one in the podcast with me is justine sedkey and alan j thomasetti and guests are from london Wissam bustani and buffalo new york cheryl emerson we also have a story from midori okay It's not from Midori, but I was at this concert when Midori was performing. It's such a famous concert that I made Alan go find the New York Times article about it. I'll tell you about it soon in the podcast. So I ran to the vault and I found a very descriptive sonata by my friend Christopher Caliendo. It's his sonata number 11 written for me called The Western Sonata. It's inspired by three Western iconic images, the stagecoach, the prairie, and the hoedown. This is the first movement, stagecoach, and I'm playing with the fabulous pianist, Katie Leung. Welcome back into Porter Flute Pod. We are really glad you're here. So, we're sitting around the table, and it comes to me. Porter, what's your favorite story? Well, it would have to be about What a Small World It Is, and Wissam Bustani driving down the M5 in England. In 1999, I invited Wissam Bustani to Atlanta. I was the program chair for the National Flute Association, and I was enamored with his charity work and his project called Towards Humanity. So let me read a little bit about Wissam from his bio. Wissam Bustani's passionate musicality has helped him forge a unique reputation as an international flute soloist. His charismatic stage presence brings tremendous power and subtlety to a wide range of musical genres ranging from Baroque, Classical, Romantic, Contemporary, and Jazz settings. Imaginative programming often mixes the innovative with the traditional, captivating audiences with an engaging style that combines an improvisatory flair with a wide emotional and expressive range and an acute sense of tone, color, and nuance. With some regularly performs and teaches in a variety of contexts, facilitating the growth of young talent. And he has a teaching method. It's a a method called love, and it focuses on improvisation and memory, self-reliance, and the development of the concept of love as a powerful motivator, facilitator, and teacher. He has been a long-standing flute professor at Trinity Le bon, London, and the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. Wissam is incredible. He plays everything from memory, and even his duo pianist plays everything from memory. If you're ever in Europe and you can get over to his workshops or masterclasses, he's just a powerful, powerful teacher. So in 1977, he moved to Britain. He was born in Lebanon, and the war in Lebanon greatly influenced his outlook on both life and music. And it says in his bio crystallizing into a burning intensity, commitment, sadness, and spirituality that find their wings in the sound of his flute. In 1985, he founded Towards Humanity which is an international initiative, uh, multi-decade, working with musicians and charities helping communities who suffer from the tragedies of war. And this project was inaugurated in February 1995 at the Royal Albert Hall in London. And this was followed by a knighthood in 1997 by the Lebanese government in recognition of his peace work. And in 1998 he was presented with the Crystal Award from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. So, everybody, hear this amazing story from my friend, Wissam.
1: So, hi, Amy. It's Wissam from London. Uh, You want me to tell the story, the very, very strange story that happened. So I'll tell it. It's a very small world, All that's all I can say. So I met Amy in 1999, I think. Uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, we met um, out in the open in Atlanta, next to her car. She had invited me to submit some uh, information for the NFA convention in Atlanta. And all went well, and I was very excited to meet Amy, and um, the convention came and went. And then a few months later, something very strange happened. Um, I was holding my flute course in Penzance, um, and I rented a car to take a bunch of participants down with me. And um, unfortunately, on the way, I got uh, caught speeding. Uh, There I was uh, driving 105 miles per hour, and the radar of the police saw me, flagged me down, and I owned up and said, I'm really sorry, you caught me red-handed. He said, well, you know, uh, you're going to have to face whatever we send you. So um, I went on to the course. We had a wonderful summer. And then in November, I get a letter saying, um, uh, you were caught speeding and... Uh, we need uh, to um, uh, uh, issue a punishment or you can come to court in Exeter, which is four hours away, this drive. So I wrote to them and said, uh, I'm I'm completely guilty and I have to face whatever you tell me, I need to, whatever fine you need to tell me. Um, And then went on with my life in December I had to go to Lebanon for a concert. And uh, while I was away, for quite a while, um, I got another letter uh, saying that, no way, uh, you have to come to Exeter to face court because of the nature of the speeding was very bad. Um, But I missed the letter because I was out of the country. So um, early January. I got another letter saying that I was in contempt of court uh, and that we're going to come and get you. So off I was. I used, to, I used to leave home very early in the morning. At 6 in the morning, I used to head out to college to practice before my students came. And one day, a van came with uh, six policemen, knocked on the door very loudly, and my wife opened, and they said, we're coming to uh, collect with Sam. And of course my mom was, uh, my, my, my wife Shamin, was in shock. The children were crying. She said, sorry, he's gone off to teach. Uh, so they, anyway, they came back, knocked again the next day and took me to prison. Uh, I was in a cell until noon that day. And then they drove me down to Exeter handcuffed. So uh, in a police car, handcuffed to a lady at the back all the way from the police station in London to the magistrate's court uh, police station um, in Exeter, four and a half hours drive. I was handcuffed all the way. By the time we got to Exeter, um, it was too late for the court case, so I had to spend the afternoon and night in prison, and uh, it was... uh, Quite, quite an experience, actually. Uh, filthy cell. Uh, very funny. Someone had written a graffiti next to the door. There's a buzzer. Because they take all your belongings off you. They take your watch. They take a necklace or anything that you might use to hang yourself. Um, and there's a buzzer uh, next to the door in case of an emergency, I suppose. And someone had written next to the buzzer room service. Um, anyway, the next morning, uh, I get taken out uh, to the magistrate's court. And a gentleman uh, comes in and says, I'm, I'm representing you. Uh, you get free representation. And I'm representing you in your court case today. Uh, I said, well, thanks very much. I don't know how these things go. So he started asking me lots of questions, name. My name is Wissam Bustani. Address, 12 Volume Grove, a profession, musician. And he said, oh, musician, uh, what instrument do you play? I said, oh, I play the flute. And he said, oh, I know a flute player uh, who's related to to me in the States. Uh, I said, oh, well, there are a lot of (laughs) flute players in the States. Uh, he said, I wonder if you know her name. I said, well, she said, her name is Amy Porter. I said, oh, yeah, I know Amy Porter very well. So out of the blue, in the middle of prison, it turned out that I was talking to the cousin of Amy Porter. And he wound up representing me in court. And actually, he got me off the sentence because... um, the police were so appalled at the way I was uh, treated, uh, driving all the way to Exeter, handcuffed. I mean, uh, gun runners, arms dealers, are treated with with more (laughs) uh, civility. So the magistrate's Court said, uh, we're just appalled at the way you were uh, uh, um, treated. Uh, They uh, let me off with a 60-pound fine and... uh, Uh, with a a big apology from the court. So this is my story of the very small world we live in where you never know who you might meet. So Amy, um, take care and um, wish your cousin a big hello from me. Bye.
0: Wissam, thank you so much for coming on my podcast to tell the story in your voice. It's truly my favorite way to hear the story. Everybody check out Wissam's website. It's spelled W-I-S-S-A-M-B-O-U-S-T-A-N-Y dot com. And it's truly, Wissam, the method called love when a flutist can help another flutist, even remotely. We are truly a family. Thank you so much, and I'll see you soon. Cheryl Emerson. She has a Bachelor of Arts in English and Creative Writing, and has a Master of Arts from UNLV in Las Vegas in Modern American Literature. And she's now a PhD candidate in Comparative Literature at the University of Buffalo. Now let's rewind about, oh, nine years. This is another great story. It's at the top of my list about how fun it is to meet people in this small world. I played Michael Dougherty's Trail of Tears in South Carolina, and the South Carolina Flute Association hosted me in a master class. Sometimes I go and people ask for private lessons. So Cheryl Emerson was on my list to teach. Cheryl came in, and she was a mom of two sets of twins. She had driven three hours, left the twins at home, and signed up for a flute lesson. I was so excited. I like teaching adults, and I feel that sometimes they reinvent themselves and reinvest in themselves as a result of coming back to music. So, nine years ago, Cheryl was an English teacher. At a Christian high school in North Carolina. So, after meeting Cheryl, life happened and we kept in touch through those ups and downs that life brings us. And after her 50th birthday, she checked herself into a program of a PhD at the University of Buffalo in creative writing. I have never been so proud of a friend who, after having two sets of twins and finding her life, sticking up for herself, reinvesting in herself and bringing the flute the whole way with her, Cheryl Emerson is super close to being a doctor, a PhD in comparative literature. So let's see what Cheryl says in our story time. Hi, Amy.
2: Cheryl here from Buffalo. You asked me two questions. First, why are stories important? And then the story of how we met. So first, a quick word about stories. The great storyteller and novelist Isaac Dennison had this to say about stories That all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story or tell a story about them. And I think the same could be said for our joys and triumphs, our solitudes and sociability. Somehow everything about a life wants to burst into story. But how much of our own stories do we really control? Not as much as we think, I would say, especially since all of the best stories come in the form of surprises events, chance encounters we never saw coming. This is because we're born into an already existing web of human relationships, to quote Hannah Arendt, where the unique life story of every newcomer will uniquely affect the life stories of all those with whom she comes into contact. My takeaway from Arendt's idea of story is that because of the unpredictable outcomes of our interconnectedness, We never know how the story of even a single day is going to end. For example, Amy, how you and I met in September 2011 in Florence, South Carolina. You were guest artist for the South Carolina Flute Society. I was living in North Carolina, just getting back to flute playing. At the time, I was uh, just another single mom trying to reclaim parts of myself. It had been over 20 years since I'd had a flute lesson. And to this day, I have no idea what possessed me to book a lesson with Amy Porter, much less get in my car that day and drive three hours to Florence, South Carolina. But that's what I did. And that one action set in motion a friendship that we could not have predicted. Well, I did get in the car and drive three hours for a lesson with you. They had put you in an old converted furniture factory that was trying to become an art studio. You were giving lessons up by the front windows, and the whole room behind you was crowded with statues. Do you remember the statues? I remember them because the sculptures made for a strange audience when it was time for my lesson. When I walked in, I remember I didn't feel like a 49-year-old mom who only played when the choir director called, I remember feeling like a kid again, showing up for my first lesson. I told you my story about wanting to get back to playing and you grabbed my arm. I mean, grabbed my arm and your face lit up. And you said, I specialize in players like you. Well, here I was thinking how Amy Porter teaches the best of the best. And what am I doing here? What was I thinking? But you seemed so glad that I walked through the door I was already feeling better, even with all those weird statues staring at me. Then you asked, did you bring a notebook? And no, I hadn't, not exactly. It hadn't occurred to me. I needed to bring school supplies to a flute lesson. But I ran back out to my car and grabbed what I had, which was my personal creative writing journal full of my poems. When I walked back in, you grabbed it from me just like that and opened it to a clean page and started writing in it like it was scratch paper in my poetry journal. And that's how I know I met you on September 24th, 2011, because you kindly wrote the date at the top of the page. You scribbled and sketched across seven pages with flute exercises and instructions. And so my worlds of writing and flute playing merged literally when you snatched my journal right out of my hands. That could have ended there, after the lesson and after your recital. I could have thanked you and gone on my way. But there was the unpredictable problem that you needed a longer dress before your Sunday recital because the plywood stage in the warehouse was just the right height for the audience to stare at your legs, and the chairs being flat on the floor meant we'd be looking up at you, and well, you were there. You needed a longer dress. I had a car. We were staying at the same hotel, and on the way back to the hotel, you said, Hey, do you want to go dress shopping? At the time, you had no idea how funny that was. Me? Dress shopping? After a few stores, you figured that out. After you kept making me try on dresses. And that was certainly not what I expected when I scheduled a flute lesson. Well, after shopping, we ended up at the Longhorn Steakhouse by the hotel, sipping beer, and starting a friendship that has lasted almost nine years now. We told each other stories, we laughed and stayed up late, and all of those events happened in a single day. Amy, I don't know if I ever told you that when I stopped for gas that morning on my way to Florence, I almost turned around. I was so afraid I would be wasting your time. And that is the story of how we met at least how it looked from my side. All right. Thanks for having me on, Amy. And thanks for doing these podcasts. Really appreciated. Bye.
0: I urge everyone to be nice. Be a nice person. Because when you're a nice person, it opens your heart. It opens your eyes. It opens your mind to meeting other nice people. I really appreciate having Cheryl Emerson in my life. Not what she does for me, but what we do together and the energy we create. We laugh a lot. So Cheryl, this following movement, Bronco Buster, this is a shout out to you and your past in rodeo. We'll talk soon. I was at a concert when I knew history was going down. I leaned into my friend. I said, did that just happen? And then a few minutes later, did that just happen again? I'll never forget. It's a famous concert. The New York Times says that Midori conquered Tanglewood, and they're absolutely right. Their banner screams, girl, comma, 14, comma, conquers Tanglewood with three violins. It's written by John Rockwell. It's from July 28th, 1986. And I was there. So we found the article. I'm going to read a little bit from the article and interject a little of my own memory. Midori, a diminutive 14-year-old Japanese violinist who studies at the Juilliard School in New York with Amy Porter, flutist. No, I'm, I'm kidding. He didn't write that. Um, But she was around Juilliard, yeah. So Bidori pulled off just that triple play Saturday at Tanglewood, astounding the audience and the Boston Symphony itself with her aplomb in a situation that might have daunted the canniest veteran, technically near perfect. All had gone normally through the first four movements of Leonard Bernstein's Serenade, assuming you count as, quote, normal, unquote, a technically near-perfect performance on a muggy night of a difficult piece played from memory with winning artistic insight by a 14-year-old. But then, in the heat of the long and complex fifth and final movement, Miss Dory broke her E string. She quickly turned to Malcolm Lowe, the concertmaster, who looked nonplussed but finally handed over his Stradivarius. There was a moment's pause while Miss Dory fitted her chin rest onto the new violin, but then... She proceeded, absolutely unfazed. Then it happened again. Another snapped E string. By this time, Mr. Lowe was playing the guadagnini of the acting associate concertmaster, Max Hobart. And Mr. Hobart had retuned Miss Dory's violin and was playing it, faking his way around the missing E string. See, we all knew something was up. When the violin string breaks, you watch the violin go to a different person and you're still watching that violin and we're thinking I think he's faking it how could he be playing okay back to the article Ms. Dory took Mr. Hobart's Guadagnini from Mr. Lowe thinking at first it was her own violin restrung realizing that it wasn't and unwilling once again to interrupt the music she played on perfectly when there was a brief pause in her part I'll never forget this she snapped on her chin rest and finished the piece on Mister Hobart's violin. When it was over, audience, orchestra, and conductor composer joined in giving her a cheering, stomping, whistling ovation. I remember I was jumping up and down, screaming. Everybody hugged Midori, starting with Mister Low and Mister Hobart. Aside from its sheer bravado, Miss Dory's feet impressed the musicians for several reasons. Her violin is a slightly smaller than normal copy of Del Jesu, given her tiny size. Yet she was able to proceed flawlessly on two different new instruments, each larger than what she was used to and different from each other. Afterwards, there were further details to be learned. Because of the humid conditions, and I remember it gets very humid there at Tanglewood, the orchestra was playing without jackets. Mr. Lowe's initial dismay came when he realized that his spare E-strings were in his jacket pocket backstage. The E-string is the thinnest of the violin's strings, normally made these days of a single steel filament, although Miss Dory's first E-string was gold-plated steel. Mr. Hobart said that while there's nothing in the physics of the violin that might predispose an E string to break more readily in hot and humid weather, those conditions, plus no doubt the importance of the occasion for Miss Dory, might have led her to press harder in her bowing in an effort to project the tone through the thick air. And by suddenly taking on a new, larger violin, Mr. Hobart speculated, she probably attacked the string at a slightly different place and angle from Mr. Lowe. Well, this was one concert that went into the history books, and I always like to tell people that I was there when Midori played three violins in one concerto. July 28, 1986. What a great story. That was so much fun bringing stories into the podcast. And I really enjoyed featuring the 11th Sonata, the Western written by Christopher Caliendo. You can find all of his sonatas for flute and piano at ChristopherCaliendo.com. He has so much music. He's a great publisher, great composer. That's spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-C-A-L-I-E-N-D-O.com. Join us for our next podcast, where we return to our first theme, performance therapy. This time, we're going to set realistic goals to our musical dreams. We're going to talk about competitions. We're going to talk about the highs and lows of musical life and embracing it. You know, rejection. We'll put the fun back in fundamentals for you. You can find me at amyporter.com or for students, porterflute.com. On Facebook, I'm Amy Porter Flutist. And on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for being here. I'm grateful for you.